Amen. Mmm, a little pep in my step this morning. I hope you do as well. It is a good day to see our second baptism here at the Church of Haynes Creek. Man, this is, this is what it's about. And I hope that you are as encouraged as I am. Naomi is, uh, as I said, somewhat unique case in the sense that she is not necessarily a new believer. Um, in fact, it's quite humbling to, to baptize someone who is as, as experienced uh, a mother and grandmother and who has a wisdom she does uh, walking humbly in obedience uh, before the authority of the church. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. We're going to be talking about discipleship. We're going to be talking about Jesus calling His disciples. John gives us account of the very first disciples that uh, Jesus calls. And He has a very interesting question to ask them. But before we start, um, one, I think it's pretty appropriate we're talking about following after Jesus just after a baptism. Uh, But I also wanted to confess to you all... um, I had a lot of anxiety this week. Uh, I, I just, for some reason, I felt. Do y'all just ever have those times where you just feel overwhelmed with worry? Just things come up. Uh, some of them had to do with the church. Some of them didn't. It, it was just, you know, just how it was. Um, and I, I really just had. Um, I think part of the the real danger of worry is sometimes you're worrying you don't even know you're worrying. Um, it's just a heavy cloud. Kind of might, might have something to do with the weather, honest to goodness. Um, but I just was worrying, and uh, I went. Other than other than uh, Ben and I meet every Friday morning. So other than Ben and I, Ben and I's meeting, I think I went the entire day without prayer. Um, other than my meals and going to bed. And I was convicted on Saturday that a, a day without prayer is pretty much a day where I'm trying to live under my own power. And I hope that you believe that. And so Saturday, I, you better believe I was praying all day. Um, and the one thing that kept coming to mind was I kept praying... God, let my love for Jesus be greater than my fear. And the reason I prayed that is, one, we know from 1 John that perfect love casts out all fear. But that's the only thing that's going to keep your anxiety at bay is if you love Jesus more than you are afraid to lose the things you have. And um, I just prayed, help my unbelief. If I can pray and trust Jesus with my soul, can I not trust Jesus with my Saturday? And I was convicted of that. Um, and we're, the reason that's relevant for our text this morning is these men are following after Jesus. We don't know anything about their past, really. All we know is they just want to follow Him and know where He's going because wherever He's going, they're going. And that is a very real picture of the church following Christ. It takes faith to do that. And the question that Jesus asks them is, what are you seeking? 
And that was kind of my prayer this, this, this weekend was, I just want to seek after you. I want you to be enough. Uh, and in a season, just a, just a spurt of anxiety and doubt and worry, and we all have them. I want us to really, if you're, if you're ever plagued by worry and anxiety, go to those texts that talk about, like James and, um, and Philippians, that talk about taking your request to God. But also go to texts like the one we're getting ready to read, which talk about following Jesus and seeking after Him. And so, without any further ado, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read out of John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. And the Holy Spirit says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes this morning and show us what it means to follow you and to be a disciple of your son, Jesus. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to break this text down this morning into three parts. I see three things really happening in this text. One, Jesus asks. Jesus has room. And three, Jesus names. Jesus asks, Jesus has room, and Jesus names. John is standing there, John the Baptist, not the one writing John. John the Baptist is standing there with two disciples. He sees Jesus walk by. He exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God, which I imagine he probably did several times during the course of his ministry. And when the two disciples hear this, they immediately leave John and start following Jesus. Which, of course, is probably, as we know, what John the Baptist wanted. Then what Jesus says next is actually pretty remarkable. In fact, I find this to be probably one of the probably the center of the passage itself and that's verse 38 Jesus turned and saw him following and said to them what are you seeking and they said to him rabbi which means teacher where are you staying now i think it's profound the very first words that Jesus utters in the entire gospel of john are what are you seeking if you have a red letter bible that's it which by the way i've got a red letter bible right here if anybody wants them Courtesy of Gene Burton. If you have an NASB, it translates Jesus' question as, What do you seek? If you have a Holman, it translates Jesus' question as, What are you looking for? In order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one way or another, he wants us to know you got to answer this question. What are you seeking? Jesus' question is very simple, but it cuts to the core of the human heart. What do you want most in this life? What are you really looking for? What do you seek? 
Jesus loves to ask these kinds of ultimate questions. And I was just thinking, look at the life of Peter, for example. Jesus loves asking Peter very simple yet very difficult questions. He asks Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Who do you say that I am? He asks Peter on the water, Why do you doubt? He asks Peter after the resurrection, Do you love me? Jesus has a way of asking the most simple yet daunting of questions. And make no mistake, church, you've got to answer those questions too. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you love Him? Why do you doubt? He asked me this weekend. And of course we have to answer the question, what are we seeking? What do we want out of life? I think in a lot of ways, the simplest questions in life are the hardest to answer. When I was in college at the University of Kentucky, go Cats, I was on the pre-med, pre-dental track. Um, that's a hard route in college. I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to toot my horn because I didn't do well. Um, but I tried, okay? I mean, you talk about organic chemistry. Have I ever told you about organic chemistry? I failed organic chemistry and then took it again and got a D. Should have been my first indication. Organic chemistry, anatomy and physiology, biology, and analytical chemistry, all this stuff. I even got my CNA certificate. I took the DAT, the DAT or whatever. If you asked me, I could tell you what I wanted to be, but I had no clue what I really wanted. And I imagine I'm not alone, or wasn't alone. And then Jesus asked me, Abby, what are you seeking? And after searching my heart, the Spirit revealed to me that what I really wanted was to be successful and have notoriety and money and comfort. I wasn't seeking Jesus. Now, I want to be clear. There are millions of people who go into healthcare to glorify God. That's just not why Abi went into healthcare or was trying. And then God revealed His will for my life, and it started with, What are you seeking, Abi? What do you want? If you really want to follow Jesus in this life, church, if you want to be His disciple, you've got to answer that question. The problem is, I think most people don't want to answer that question, honestly. Why is it that I could ask someone about their 401k plan or their job or their kids' education or their investments or sports, but as soon as I ask someone as simple a question as, what are you really seeking in this life, I get, like, weird looks. The real questions that scare us in this life aren't about money, jobs, or future. They're the ones that force us to look inside of our own hearts. How many people have read the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? I love that book. I, I love it, and it also kind of scares me a little bit that someone could have that creativity, and it really hits, the, hits home. In the book Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis tells a story of two demons who are, trying, who are talking to one another about how to get people to sin. And this is what one demon tells the other. I mean, it's just it, oh, it's so close to the truth, it's scary. He says this, We can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate relationship with their Savior. Once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. 
So let them go to their churches. Let them have their covered dish dinners. But steal their time. So they don't have time to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do, said the devil. Distract them from gaining a hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout the day. How shall we do this? His demon shouted. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. You know, I think oftentimes, and I think C.S. Lewis even says that, I think oftentimes we think that spiritual warfare and demonic powers are all about putting ideas in your head when oftentimes it's keeping them out. Keeping us so dang busy. Never asking the ultimate questions in life. People can work all all day, raise a family, get married, retire, never asking the question that Jesus asked the disciples. What do you really want? I think our, our culture has no problem asking, wait, what do you want to do? What do you want to do for a living? Where do you want to go to college? What are you doing after college? Hey, where, uh, where, you, where do you want to go? Where do you want to live? Who do you want to be with? But it's so hard to be honest about what our heart really desires, how Satan works to distract us seven days a week to keep our mind occupied to the non-essentials of life so that we never have to come face to face with a question as simple as, what do you want? We know what our goals are. We know what the number in our bank account is. We know what we're doing this weekend. We know what the next game that we're going to watch on TV. We even know when our next vacation is. But what Jesus wants to know is, what do you really want? I know you want a raise. I know you want a good career. I know you want to get pregnant. I know you want a family. I know you want a bigger house. But what do you really want? If you ask that question to your best friend, if you ask that question to your neighbor, if you ask that question to your father-in-law today, what do you think they'd say? Would it be, man, I just want to find my satisfaction the joy and the grace of Jesus Christ? All right. Good deal. I don't think you'd hear that. Most people, I think you'd hear something as mundane and worldly as, I just want to make it to retirement. Nothing wrong with that. But it's funny how people just, they'd only stop so far. Man, I just, I want to be happy. Jesus says, you're going after a what, not a who. Here I am. Jesus died on the cross so that we couldn't have to live a me-centered life. It's incomplete. It's idolatrous. It's leading millions to hell. Jesus Christ died so that we could seek Him with all of our hearts. So that we could have His Holy Spirit. That's why He sought us first. It's because we were seeking the wrong things. The two men in verse 38 know what they want. They know where Jesus is staying. They want to know, where are you staying at? They want to wait. And you know what Jesus says? Hey, come on. They want Jesus is what they want. The entire purpose in their life, their entire heart's fulfillment is standing right before their eyes. They're going to follow Him wherever He goes. I mean, how, that we could be so blessed. How many people in here have pets? Raise your hand. Oh, we got pet lovers. Man, I tell you, Georgia people just love them some pets. Pets are everywhere. 
Did, did I ever tell y'all a story about... Oh, God, we get into rabbit trail on that one. Did I ever tell you about the dog Kelly and I had when we first got married? Okay, that's... Anyway. Needless to say, I don't have a pet. How many people have a dog? All right. How many people have a dog whose entire existence revolves around sleeping, eating, and playing with you when you get home? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, I want to find this dog. (laughs) Unless we carefully define the reason we do what we do on this earth, unless we carefully define what we're seeking in this world, unless we are consciously doing all that we do for the glory of Jesus Christ and not simply waking up every morning, we're like rats in a cage. Are we not? I mean, think about it. You could get up in the morning, drink your coffee, go to work, eat lunch, go back to work, come home, eat, watch Netflix, eat, snack, brush your teeth, go to sleep, do it all again, rinse and repeat. There are millions and millions of people who have lived that life and they live it over and over and over every single day until they die. Never looking up. Never having a larger purpose. And it's only until they die that they finally realize they were living for themselves. Not seeking Jesus. You have to deny yourself to follow anyone in this life. Does your life tell people who or what you're seeking? Parents, are you asking your children these ultimate questions? Because you better believe when my children get up, to a certain age, they're gonna. I'm gonna ask them. Hey, hey, what do you want? What do you what what what, do you, what what's what what's Roman and Ruby supposed to worship? Who are y'all looking for? Who fulfills your souls? I'm gonna ask them that question before I ask them what college they want to go to. One of my favorite movie trilogies is The Matrix. How many people have ever seen The Matrix? Oh, got some sci-fi people here. All right, good deal. Raise that. Raise those hands again one more time. I just want to see them. Okay, I know where my people are. Um, do you remember that scene? Okay, if you haven't seen Matrix, it's basically everyone I kind of think knows the, the. Basically, everyone's living in a virtual world. The, the, this life now is not reality. It's basically a coma-induced virtual world where I guess machines are harvesting our thoughts. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you sound when you explain it, it sounds really ridiculous. <laughs> My wife's going, which is why you don't need to watch it. Do you remember that scene where Morpheus, he, he wakes up out of the coma and he comes into real life. And Morpheus gives him the blue pill or the red pill. You remember that scene? He says, if you eat the blue pill, if you take the blue pill, you can go back to the dream world and you can live in virtual reality and never know what real reality is. But if you take the red pill, there ain't no going back. You take the red pill, you here to stay. And this world is awful. <laughs> but at least you'll know the truth. You cannot unknow what you've now seen. And that's kind of what it's like when a Christian has their eyes opened to the glory of Jesus. And what I mean is, we finally see that everything else is just a rat race. 
the working all day so that we can make a bunch of money and spend it on things we don't really need. Buying big toys so that we can play with them until they break. Constantly living for ourselves and nothing other than our reputations. We see the life of idolatry for what it is and what it was. It's a road to the grave. I don't want that life anymore. You couldn't get me to taste that. It's repugnant to me. It doesn't mean I don't sin. It doesn't mean that, like this weekend, I slip into a me-centered reality. But what I know at the end of the day is Christ is risen and there is a hope that far exceeds this reality. We are in but a dream compared to heaven. And I believe that. You know why? I think we talked about this before. It never, I hate that word. I, mean, I hate. I'm trying to get away from that word. I really don't like the word afterlife. We talked about this. Because it makes it sound like this is the life and that's just afterward. No, 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 that's life. We enter life in heaven. And my point being, we've seen reality now in Christ. We've seen the real reason and the real purpose that everything works. We've seen the reason that the trees go up to the sun. We've seen the reason the birds and the mountains and the seas cry out. Because we've seen the living God. There's a reason and His name is Jesus. We are either living for ourselves or we're living for Him. Do you want Him? Do you want Him? Not are you serving Him? Not are you doing things for Him? Do you want Jesus? Because at the end of the day, the glory of your children will not satisfy your soul. The glory of really good friends will not satisfy your soul. The glory of a supportive husband or wife won't even satisfy your soul. Discipleship begins and ends with wanting Jesus and wanting more of Jesus. When Jesus asks these men what they're seeking, He's asking them essentially if they're going to leave everything and seek after Him. That's essentially what discipleship was in the, the Near Eastern culture in the first century. Because unless you're seeking Christ first, you will not follow Him, you will not obey Him, you will not worship Him, and you will not please Him. Unless we want Him first. So the good news is that Jesus says, He who seeks, finds. Which leads us to number two. Jesus has room. Verse 39, He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where He was staying, and they stayed with Him all that day, for it was about the tenth hour. We were talking about our, at, in our small group a couple weeks ago. We're going through the book of Mark on Wednesday nights. And we were talking about the, the, the fact that Jesus' reputation in Galilee and the surrounding area at that time was mounting. And it was, a, it was a groundswell of people who just wanted to be around Jesus. His reputation was huge. There were throngs of people coming to His own door. And never once did He lose His cool. Never lost His compassion. He was always patient, always kind. He was never short with anyone. I think I even confessed to my small girl. I'm like, sometimes I get calls on my phone and it just irritates me. Like, Stop texting me. I don't do that with y'all. I'm kidding. Um, my point being, how prone we are to get irritated over the things that don't matter. And Jesus never did. I mean, how awesome does Jesus have to be to have that level of praise and adoration and respect and having people worship you and healing and being the man and people are like, hey, can we stay with you? Yeah, sure. 
I mean, when I grew up, when I was growing up, I loved Brett Favre. He was the man. I just, I loved me some Brett Favre. I thought he was like the iron dude. I doubt if I would go up to Brett Favre and be like, hey, can I stay with you for night? Yeah, sure, I'll be gone. I doubt Brett Favre's that cool. Jesus is, these men want to hang out with him. He's like, sure. Now, John records that it was the 10th hour for a couple reasons. One, gospel writers frequently recorded times and witnesses in order to verify their accounts. But secondly, John wants us to know that when it was, it was basically the 10th hour, at least in the way they measured it in Near Eastern, in that, in that time in the first century, that's about 4 p.m. So the day was winding down. So what John is essentially telling us is Jesus was taking them in so they didn't have to walk home in the dark. Jesus has room. I mean, just imagine the mercy of Jesus. When we seek Jesus with our entire heart, Jesus promises us He will never turn anyone away. He's overflowing with mercy. Now, what I also like is the fact that we don't know from this text anything about these men's previous lives. History does not record what they did prior to following after Jesus. All we know about is the fact that they followed after Jesus and became His disciples. Which I think should be encouraging to anyone who right now has a horrible past and you're just following after Jesus. It was sufficient for them, it's sufficient for you. I mean, he had room. John Bunyan, his autobiography in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Bunyan talks about how he read Luke chapter 14 in the parable of the banquet when the man tells his servants that there's still more room for guests. And this is what John Bunyan says when he read read that, that parable. These words, but especially those, and yet there is room, were sweet words to me. For truly that, I thought that by them I saw that there was a place enough in heaven for me. And moreover, that when the Lord Jesus spoke these words, He thought of me. Jesus has prepared mansions of glory for those who follow after Him who follow Him. And He knows them by name. And He not only knows them by name, there's still room for more. Our room and board has been paid in heaven by the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel. And there's still room. Our fee has been paid. Our debt has been paid. And thirdly, finally, Jesus names. Verses 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I don't know if I mentioned before, but my dad was a high school football coach for like 30 years. Um, you'll meet him here probably in a couple weeks. He's going to come paint our house. And uh, Dad just looks like a football coach, I think. Um, dad always gave... We would always, Dad was a running backs and DBs coach. And so Dad, when we were really young, Dad would always take out, if you ran over 100 yards, Dad would take you to Ryan Steakhouse um, that, that Monday night. So Grant and I were ball boys, so we thought it was like a really, it was always neat for us to like go out and hang out with the, with the players. And Dad always gave nicknames to his players. 
And I'm not talking like just on the field. Like they grew up, became adults, became contributing members of society, got married, had kids, and dad is still calling them their nicknames today. Uh, one of them actually moved across the street from us uh, when I was in high school. And dad still, to this day, I heard dad reference him the other day uh, when I went home. His dad still calls him Gillette because he was 13 and shaving. Dad calls the man. The man is like close to 40 now. And dad calls him Gillette. I just thought that was ridiculous. I'm like, does he let you say that? He's like, yeah. yeah. You ought to ask him, dad. I don't know if he's cool with that. He's like, oh, yeah. And dad called one of his players one time. I didn't really get it because I was like in fifth grade. Dad still calls him Metamucil to this day. <laughs> because he always had indigestion before games. Dad calls the dude Metamucil. He has like three kids. And I'm like, Dad, you gotta, you gotta pick new names. Like, Dad's like, oh, he's fine with it. I don't know. Um, I mean, even my eighth grade algebra teacher, like... The, the nickname is, I just won't repeat it because it's ridiculous, but like dad would come pick us up and he would, you know, uh, Mr. Satterley would be working the cart and, hey, how you doing? He'd call him his nickname and I'm like, and Mr. Satterley's a huge dude. And I was like, dad, is he cool with that? He's like, yeah. He's like, oh, hey, coach, how you doing? I was like, I guess he is. Some of the nicknames were just really ridiculous. Um, but one thing all the players understood was if dad gave you a nickname, you were one of his favorites. He was close to you. If dad gave you a nickname, he remembered you. I didn't realize that until I got older. It was a small honor on the Apollo football team to have a nickname. Because there was an affection there. And it's kind of the same principle here. Those who are closest to Jesus have nicknames. He shares a bond with them. Peter is, or Petros in Greek, is Greek for rock. Cephas is just Aramaic for rock. Jesus calls James and John what? Sons of thunder. You know, which I think is pretty much the most awesome nickname in the Bible. As Christians, we love the mercy and the love and the compassion of Jesus, but let's not forget that Jesus also knew these men as intimate friends. He walked with them. He sat next to fires with them. He fished with them. This Jesus knew these men. He walked with them. And when Jesus asks us to seek after Him, He's asking us not only to worship Him, not only to trust Him, not only to bow before Him, He's also asking us to be His friend. What an honor it is to call the High King of Heaven our friend. And He knows our name. That's like Brett Favre knowing my name like times... A trillion. What an honor it is. I think it's interesting that Peter, who is to be the head of the Jewish church, and really the leader of all the disciples, isn't the first disciple to be called. In fact, Peter isn't even the first to be called in his own family. Did you catch that? It was actually his brother Andrew who told him about Jesus. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah. So Andrew basically saying, hey, I found the guy who the Spirit rests without measure. I found the Messiah. I found the King of Kings. I found the fulfillment of the prophecies. I found the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. And Peter was evangelized by his own brother. Funny how we don't remember Andrew as much. 
I just kind of thought of that because I thought the person you share Jesus with at Kroger or Walgreens could be the next Billy Graham. Could be the next John Piper. Without Andrew, there wouldn't have been a head of disciples. Without Andrew, there wouldn't have been a first and second Peter. There would have been no sermon at Pentecost. God's will for your life does not stop with you. Discipleship breeds discipleship. Think about how many people are here because someone else said, hey, come and worship Jesus. All Andrew did was say, hey, I found him. He stood up and said, let's go. This morning, tomorrow, this week, Jesus is still asking us the very same question He asked these two disciples. What are you seeking? And I just, the, the irony is not lost on me that the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Alpha and Omega, could not be received into the inn when He was born because what? There wasn't no room. And yet... He kneels down to filthy, wretched sinners and tells us that there is still room for us in His heavenly kingdom. For us. For us. Couldn't make room for the King of Kings. He can make room for criminals. That is the gospel, friends. That's the grace of Jesus. Are we seeking Him? Because that's all faith and repentance is, is seeking after Jesus. If you haven't sought Him with all of your heart, there's good news. There's room. Let's repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, there is no shadow of turning in You. You are constant. You are immeasurable. You are so vast. You are so transcendent. You are so perfect and yet You knelt down to us and said, I'm going to take on flesh, and I'm going to die in Christ for sinners. Father, all you ask of us is that we follow you. Father, give us the strength and the courage and the faith to walk in the light. Give us the faith to follow you. Because that's what we need. And the author of Hebrews says that is all that can please you. Father, cut to our core of our hearts, cut to the core of our souls, examine us, search us with your Spirit so that we can get to the, to the heart of the problem, which is what do we want? And if we want the wrong things, Father, help us want the right thing, and that's Jesus. Father, please make your Son the supreme apple of our eyes. Help us to fix ourselves and our eyes and our souls on the only glory that remains, and that is Jesus. And all these things we ask in your Son's name. Amen.